Thank you for tuning in to Cobblestone Community Church today. We hope this message blesses you. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com. Now here's the message. Grab a Bible, go to Acts. Go to Acts 2. Uh, we're going to be in Acts all the way to Acts 4, 5, 6, and 7. And you're like, Andrew, I've heard you preach an hour on one verse. How are you going to do four chapters? I don't know, but it's going to be fun. I promise. I love the book of Acts because you and I are in this room because of the book of Acts. Because God became and he put out his spirit and poured it out on a group of people who then went and told another group of people. You're here because someone told somebody else. Your great granddaddy, grandpappy, was told by somebody. And you can go down the line, you have a group of people that were sent by Jesus to talk about what he had done, and they did it. And so if you want to know what we're about here, this is what we're about to do. Uh, It's really pretty simple. We read the Bible, we preach the Bible, and then we live the Bible. Now, of those three things, there's one that's harder than all the other ones. It's the living part. The The reading the Bible part's pretty easy. Learning and memorizing the Bible can be harder for some, but it's pretty easy. Preaching and yelling at it, I think I'm going to do okay. It's the living, the Bible, that we struggle with sometimes. And so when the Bible says, pray for your enemies, can we agree that that's hard? Bless those that persecute you. Bless those that make your life difficult. Make it a good, like bless them. That's hard. And so as we read the book of Acts today, it excites me Because I believe God wants to show us that he wants to fill us with the same power, the same life, and send us in a very similar way that he sent the first church. And as you study things, this is why I like the book. If you want to understand a thing, look at how it began. So study movements or political movements even, and look at where they started and why they started and who was there. And I've heard this my whole life, and it's not my thought. Do you know what God's idea of a church start is, or a church plant? How does God start churches? Acts 2. How do we start churches? Demographic studies, controlled environments, soft seats. But if you read this, God shows up and he like pours out his spirit and there's flames of fire and tongues of fire. They're all yelling random languages in different directions. People think they're drunk for Pete's sake. And God goes, that's my church. That's it, right? And all of a sudden, boom, it spreads out across the world because there's a people that are going, God, it's not us, it's you. And I want to lean into that because as we read the book, you you have to understand that I don't believe in reading the Bible just to learn the facts in my head. What could God be calling us into? What can we join that God is still doing today? So I'm going to stop. This is what I always do. I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray. And if you know Jesus, I want you to pray too. I want you to ask God to change us. I want to pour out his spirit, do whatever he wants to do. If he wants to do it, I'm all about it. Yeah? And then we'll get into the word and I, it's always good. So Jesus, we stop and we invite you to do whatever you want to do. You are the living God. There's no one like you. You didn't stop 2,000 years ago pouring out your spirit. You didn't stop 2,000 years ago saving people. So I pray this morning, you would do what no men can do. You would transform the human heart. You would save souls. You would heal bodies. We would see the glory of the Son of God. That your kingdom would be built here. I pray for a removal of distractions. I thank you that your word is true and I pray that it would cut us and we would be moved by it. I want to see you. I want to know you. In Jesus' name, amen? So here's here's a question you should always ask when reading the Bible. It's a good principle. When you read any book of the Bible, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Do you know what those words mean? So descriptive is, is it just telling us what happened? 
Is it history? Is it the facts and the details laid out of David killed Goliath? That's descriptive. I don't think God sent us out to kill all the giants of the land. Or is it prescriptive? And prescriptive is a doctor writes a prescription. This is what you should do. This is how you should act. This is what it's going to look like. You should too also be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's prescriptive. So when you read the book of Acts, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Which one? Want to get in a fight about it? Can I say both? Can I say both? I'm going to say both, and this is the thing. I've met people that say opposites. I've met guys that are, it's only descriptive. It tells you how it started. It tells you that God did a thing. He's not doing that thing anymore. And then I met other people who are like, oh, it's only prescriptive. And they're like, you should be speaking in tongues right now. And I'm like, oh, and we should all be having tongues of fire. It's either descriptive or prescriptive, but I'm like, let's marry those things and go, okay, God did a thing to launch his church which doesn't look like our church is today. But he also said, walk by, be led by, and be filled with the Holy Spirit elsewhere in Scripture. So what does that mean? And let's learn that together. So grab your Bibles and go to Acts chapter 5. Because here's my thought. If there's nothing we can emulate, if there's nothing that God's still doing 2,000 years later, if God launched his church by pouring out the Holy Spirit and shaking a building and filling them with tongues and all this stuff, but he's now only doing it by our strength and our intellect, then why are we reading this book? But if God's idea of a church launch is Acts 2, I think we have some things to learn. So here's what you'll have to know. I wanted today to come in here and I wanted to preach about the Holy Spirit. You're like, no kidding, you? I know. So this is what I'll tell you. I'm going to do that next week, so now you cannot come if you don't want to. But I want you to notice that you can't flip a page of the book of Acts without running into the Holy Spirit. Every, every other verse is the Holy Spirit filled, the Holy Spirit led, the Holy Spirit gifted, the Holy Spirit stopped, the Holy Spirit filled again, the Holy Spirit filled again. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So here's all my only ask, and I know when we talk about the Holy Spirit, some of us get nervous. Can you and I just say this? I don't fully understand the Holy Spirit. Can you just get there? And if you're like, what? No, it's the same thing as saying, I don't fully understand God. I don't, and I'm always learning. And so we're going to come next week, and we're going to ask some good questions. But this week, I want you to notice that Acts 2 launches the church with the power of the Holy Spirit. It starts to spread out into the nations, and then immediately Satan starts to attack it. Immediately. And I think Tim killed it last week, because the very first attack of the, of, against the church was the government and the Pharisees and the systems of the world going, you will not preach the name of Jesus. And you know what they say? Well, we're not going to listen to you. That's my paraphrase. And then they go preach it anyway. But really what happens is that's the first external threat, and then you start to see multiple internal threats. And I think they're good for us to see. So Acts 5, you get this chipper little tale of a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. It's not very chipper, but it's a good warning for us. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So when I read the Bible, I stop all the time. I write notes in the margin. I go cross-reference stuff, and I, and I really start to ask some deep questions. So what you'll notice is it was a normal practice in the church, as it should be now, for them to give up their stuff, sell their stuff, and give their money so other people could be blessed. And what had happened is a man named Ananias wanted to be noted, wanted to be applauded. And he, what is, this is what he wanted to have happen. He'd come give a large sum of money, and everyone would be like, Wow, Ananias, you're so godly. You're so spiritual. Except for there's an apostle of Jesus standing there who knows what the Holy Spirit sounds like. And he says two things that I want to wrestle with. He says the first thing, why has Satan filled your heart? 
Can Satan do that? So this is a man in a church. This is a man who supposedly belongs to Jesus, and Peter says to him, Ananias, why has Satan, the prince of demons, the liar and accuser, why has he filled your heart with this thought that you would sell a thing and then lie? So once again, is it prescriptive or descriptive? And this is what I mean. Can Satan do that here? Can he do it here? Does he do it here? And so this is Satan's kind of second attack because the outward attack by the government don't preach about Jesus didn't work. So he's like, I know. I'll tempt this man to want human applause and the hypocrisy. That'll hurt the church. But Peter looks at him and says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? And then notice what he says, but this is how we need to read the Bible. Who does he lie to? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to God, to me, to us? No, to lie to the Holy Spirit. Which is, he could have said a whole lot of other titles, could he not? So if I walk in here and I go, hey, I just gave a million dollars to this church. And you all were like, right? Who did I lie to? You. But apparently when we gather in the name of Jesus, something so powerful and real and tangible is happening that we are really actually living our lives before a God who sees everything. Now, I'm not going to read this part, but what happens is Peter looks him in the face and says, because Satan filled your heart and you lied to the Holy Spirit, you're going to die, and he dies. Can you imagine? And this is what happens in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, put that here, right? None of you would want to come to this church anymore. None of you. Like if I came here, I gave a million dollars to this church. And then I was like, eh. you'd be like, you clap your hands over your kids' mouths. You'd be like, don't, don't lie. We would become the most truth-filled, God-loving, God-honoring people in a moment. Why aren't we? And it says great fear. So that's not a little bit of fear. That's not a smidge of fear. That's great, like, oh my gosh, he could kill me. That's great fear fell upon the whole church. And here, typically, when we think fear, we think bad. But you know, fear is a good thing sometimes because it keeps you from doing stupid stuff. So my kids, they have no fear. And because of it, they end up on my roof a lot. But really, fear, if there's a big, if you go camping and there's a great cliff, if you're a normal person, fear will keep you from doing this. But if you're not a normal person, like me or my kids, we get as close as we can. Anna freaks out, palms sweaty, freaking out. Because fear actually should motivate us to safety sometimes. And when the Bible uses the fear of the Lord, it's not talking, oh, he's going to smite me. I'm so afraid of him. I can't go near him. It's there's an honor, a respect, a glory, a reverence, a dignity given to the God of heaven and earth. Fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. And many of us, we've begun to not fear, and we don't think it's a big deal. So when I read this, you would expect if great fear hits the church, well, the church will shrink. No one will want to go there. But go in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, which is a place in the temple. None of the rest dared join them, no kidding, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So when in a moment, a man, one of the attacks of Satan, fills a man's heart with a desire to be praised, by the people of God. And in that moment, he lies to God and God kills him and fear falls on the church and Satan's like, got him. But what's the exact opposite thing that happens? 
The fear of the Lord produces genuine esteem of the people of the community, of the people of God. They're like, we don't really want to go around them because that's scary, but we like them. And then what starts to happen? A great multitude of men and women are being brought into the church because the church is fearing God, not people. Because the church is finally going, we're going to give God the credit he's due. We're going to give him the place he deserves. We're going to honor him in all things. The fear of the Lord brings wisdom. So the church doesn't slow. So if the first attack was the government going, don't preach about Jesus, that didn't work. Hypocrisy didn't work. What else could work to stop the church of Jesus? We'll look at that in a second, but I want to ask two things or bring two things to your mind. The Lord sees and knows our sin is something you can see through Ananias' life, right? The Lord sees and knows your sin. The Lord knows what you do in the dark. And you're going to feel like I'm threatening you right now. I'm not. I want to call you into the light. The Lord knows what you looked at last night on the computer. The Lord knows your doubt. The Lord knows what you're stuck in. The Lord knows where you're broken. The Lord knows your weaknesses. The Lord knows everything about you. The Lord knew Ananias was lying. And the only problem is, is Ananias thought he could hide from God. Ananias thought, I'm going to get the applause of men. And he lied. And God called him out. And my prayer for today is that you and I, we would stop hiding from God. One of my favorite things to tell Christians is stop treating God like he's mad at you and start treating him like your father and your friend. I'm not being inappropriate. I talk to God about everything. I talk to God about sex. I talk to God about anger. I talk to God about lust. I talk to God about pride. I talk to God about all things in my life. Why? Because he's the lover of my soul, my father in heaven, my friend. And so many of us, we're so, all of our energy is going into hiding. When God's like, if you'll stop hiding, I'll save you. If you'll stop hiding, you won't reap the punishment of your sin. You'll reap the blessing of my salvation. Are you hiding from God? What are you hiding from God? Are you being like Ananias and you've come in here today? The second thing is the fear of the Lord is a good thing. It's a good thing. And, and when I think about it, the fear of the Lord for me is, with, well, I'll do it with my kids again. There's, we make rules, and it's like the proverbial you know, line in the sand. Don't do this. Do you know what my kids love to do with lines in the sand? I'm not touching it. You do the same thing, right? And so we start to not fear God in a gradual state. Usually we don't just like, screw God, I'm stepping off. No, we, we edge up to things that'll hurt us. We ask things like, how much, how little do I have to pray for God to still like me? How much money do I have to give for God to still answer my prayers? We start asking the wrong set of questions because the fear of the Lord starts to dissipate. dissipate. And I think God's like, no, 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 fear me, honor me, I, I, I'll be, not even, it's not even respect. It's like, I'll give you the highest place and I'm not gonna toe the line because I wanna honor you in all things. When I think of the fear of the Lord, I'll do it this way. Um, what would you do? What would you do if every time I came in your house, I spit on your wife? All the men in the room were like, I'll show you five things. Right? What would you do if every time I came in your house, I was like, that's a nice vase you have there. Oops. Right? What would you do if every time I came in your house, I disrespected your family and your rules and your ways, and I made it all about me? I don't like meatloaf. Make me a steak. What would you do? Now, put that in terms of God's house. What would you do and multiply it if every time you come before God, you spit on his ways, you hide from him, and you make little of what he's asked us to do. What would you do? Now, he's rich in love and full of mercy, but this is what Ananias did. He walked into God's house and lied to his face because he thought he was only lying to men. 
And so my question for you is, what are you hiding from God? And do you see a fear of God in your heart? Because that attack of the enemy still happens today. That still happens. We all were like, yep, Satan can still fill a heart. Satan can still fill us with an idea to do something for our own self-gratification. Satan could still make us want to be like, look at what I'm giving. Aren't I cruel and spiritual? Satan still does these things, and so we still have to be aware of them, yeah? But that didn't stop the church, so what's next? Well, the church grows, and you have the church in Jerusalem. It's about 10,000 people at this point, and Jerusalem holds about 40,000, so about a quarter of the city is Christians in the book of Acts, towards about Acts chapter 7. They are getting the, the favor of the people. They're meeting every day. They're honoring the word of the Lord. They're seeing wonders and signs and miracles, salvations. I mean, he's walking down the street for Pete's sake, and his shadow's healing people. We call that a good day in ministry. Yeah? It's a real good day. You got to start feeling a little bit like, my shadow's even powerful. Like, so what could Satan do to stop that? to stop all that movement. Well, verse six, chapter six, verse one, you get the answer. It's the fourth attack of Satan on the church, or the third one. And it says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose by the Hellenists. Now the Hellenists are just Jews that were, from, were Greek in their roots, and so they were from Hella, so they were Hellenists. And there arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So Satan has attacked through the persecution of the government, saying you will not preach about Jesus. Satan has attacked by hypocrisy in the church and filling a man's heart to make it about him, not about the Lord. And now Satan is stirring up people to do what people do. Get a group of humans together, and they will do two things, one of two things. They will grumble or they will leave. We are no different. And so some of us, we don't see this as a problem, but here's the, it's got an edge to it because what they're claiming is you don't care about our widows because of racial, because of our ethnicity. And so they start to do what people do. They grumble and they complain and they go, can you believe they don't care about our widows? I heard Bob said they don't care about our widows and it just spreads. And so what happens is they never brought it to the apostles. They never bring it to the leaders. They just backbite and talk and devour. And all of a sudden, you don't realize, do you realize that more churches are actually destroyed by grumbling and complaining than persecution? More churches go under because of complaining and grumbling than persecution. This is what Satan does. And it's a smokescreen. And you're like, that doesn't happen. Oh, I, I, oh. I had a guy once say, why don't you have the coffee I like? What? I didn't know we were a coffee shop. Why, did, why is that wall that color? I don't care. That's why. Like, and so the, the picture, the, the man gets offended about the coffee, so he says to one of you, can you believe they don't have dark roast? And somehow Satan gets in there and you're like, this is an issue. We got to, Susan, they don't have dark roast. And all of a sudden, you're calling a church council. You're like, he's not being a good minister of the gospel. And you're like, what? Because it's a smokescreen. Satan wants us looking at anything and everything other than the Son of God. But here's the thing. The widows aren't unimportant. It's not because they're like, ah, oh, that's not important. So what do leaders do? What do God's leaders do? This is what they do in verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the 12, the apostles, the leaders, the guys that just killed Ananias, well, not killed him, but called him out. Family meeting! Anybody come from a family meeting house? I did growing up, and I was always the cause of them, man. <laughs> like dad and mom be sitting down there at the dining room table, be like, family meeting! And inevitably, every time they'd be like, Alexa, who's my sister, you need to go to your room. We got to talk to your brother. <laughs> and that was the family meeting. This is the way to do it, right? Everybody in here, everybody watch this. Satan's not hiding anything in any corner. We're going to do this now. We do this here with our family dinners. 
We're not hiding anything. Bring it all into the light. Satan won't have his day here. That's how you do it. So that's what they did. And they say a thing, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word and the ministry of prayer for the waiting of tables. And here's what you have to understand. They're not saying it's beneath them. The apostles actually learned from Jesus the hard way about washing feet, about the first will be last and the last will be first. They know what a leader is and they know what servant leadership is because they watched their savior die for them and wash their feet. What they're saying is there is an importance to the word of God, yeah? We have to hear the word. People are called to preach the word, but what about the tables? And what they do is, well, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. So the whole room's like, yeah, let's do that. Situation diffused, widows being cared for, so here's my question. If we had a need in this church, what, like table waiting, coffee team, whatever team it is, how are you making that team? And more importantly, what are the characteristics of the people on the team? Notice he says, the, the apostles say two things. Do you want to serve the widows? Will you wash the tables for us? Will you be these men? And they say two things, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. That's it. If we did it, it would be like a laundry list. They say two things. Find me a man that's full of the spirit of God and find me a man that's full of wisdom. Now here's the question. How do you gauge those things? And this is once again how I read the Bible. So if he, the apostles are scanning the crowd and going, that one's full, that one's a little half full. That one, you know, like how do they know? And can you be not full of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't get antsy on me. I'm gonna answer all these questions next week. But if some are full, are they looking at like Roger in the back corner and being like, Roger's not quite full yet. We're waiting. And I'll get off the Holy Spirit. Are you full of wisdom? Are you full of the wisdom of God? And how would you know? I'll use Roger as an example. And if there's a man named Roger in this back corner, I'm in trouble, but I don't think there is. You know a person that lacks wisdom? It's like the person that goes to the grocery and they're like, well, they had one two liter for a dollar and two for 250. What a deal. You're like, bud. Wisdom. Do you know what I mean? So honestly, if we use it in the wisdom where we get less offended, you know people that are lacking wisdom, yeah? You're like, yeah, I have a couple kids. Yeah, lacking wisdom. So we grow in wisdom. So could it be that maybe some of us aren't quite full of the Holy Spirit, but we want to claim that we are? And could it be that some of us want to be like, I'm so wise, but really we might need to grow in some wisdom? But their, their prerequisites are two things, full of the Spirit of God and full of the wisdom of God. So I'll ask you these questions. And like I said, are you full of the Holy Spirit? And how would you know? Because in my car, it tells me like my gas light goes off and I know that I need to fill up. How would you know? Is it okay to pursue to be full of the Holy Spirit? And what are the steps to do that? That's what we'll be talking about next week. Um, but here's what it says about Stephen in verse eight. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And once again, when I read the Bible, when it says great wonders, those must be better than little wonders. Those are great ones. Awe-inspiring wonders of the kingdom of God being done by Stephen. So let's talk about Stephen. Who was he? There's some facts you probably know. Stephen was the first, first martyr, first guy to die for Jesus. Stephen, Stephen was a uh, what? What do you know about him? This is a zero, a goose egg. You don't know anything about him. You know why? I'm going to call him a nobody. He's a normal guy. He's one of the disciples. And the only character, like the thing that stands out for me is when someone goes, who will wash the tables of the widows and serve them food? You know who raises their hand? Stephen. And how contrary that is to me in my life and some of us. Because we walk in and we go, man, I want a teaching ministry and a book deal, stat. 
And you know who God's looking for? People that will serve tables. And he pours his spirit out on normal people, ordinary people. This is what I love about Stephen. Stephen's not an apostle, correct? Stephen's not one of the 12. He's not one of the super apostles. He's a normal guy, a deacon, a diakonos, which is a servant. And because he says, I'll serve in a humble manner, I believe God does great wonders through a normal, ordinary man. And this is my favorite thing about the book of Acts. God does his greatest work through ordinary people. Except not, all of us were like, I'm not ordinary. Claim that title, man. Will you claim that with me? So, so many of us, I live in Oxford, Ohio, not a great metropolis of the world, right? Some of you live in Brookville. What's up? Dartown. Yeah. You know, like wherever you're from, West College Corner. Uh, and you're like, what? I'm just, you know, what could God do with an ordinary man or woman from West College Corner? Nothing, right? God, I mean, God leads them, but he doesn't lead me. Oh, God gives them, but he doesn't give me. Oh, God speaks through Andrew, but he doesn't speak through me. God uses ordinary people surrendered to him, full of the Holy Spirit, to do wonders. God uses you. My highest calling on my life is not to lead Saul to Christ. My highest calling is to equip you to lead Saul to Christ. You are my ministry. To equip you to do the work that Stephen's doing. No matter what it is. Except at times in my life, if you would have said, hey, wash the tables and care for the widows, I would have said, I wouldn't have said it, but you would have felt it. That's beneath me. I would have said, I got too great a gifts to do that. Not Stephen. And what I love about Stephen is he challenges me because who is Stephen? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us a normal guy. Who is Stephen filled with? Say it again. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the third person of the Trinity, God himself. Oh, now I'm going to preach. All right. John 16, 7. This is what Jesus says. And we don't believe him. It is better for you that I go away and that the helper comes. This is Jesus's words, red letter. Jesus in the flesh is, he says, it's better that I'm gonna go away because I'm gonna give you something better. How many of us believe that? I would love right now to be like, and here he is, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then here comes Jesus, and you're like, Jesus. And how many of us would love that? I would love that I wanna be with him, yeah? And so you're like at a Christmas party or a church party and then run out of checks mix. You're like, Jesus, multiply. You know what I mean? Get a headache. Jesus is like, no headache. Your dog dies. He raises to life. Your cat dies. He buries it. I mean, like, it's just like so many things. So it's a cat joke. Got it. Dang. Uh, how many of us would love Jesus to be right here? But he said, and Stephen declares it's better that the Spirit of God's in me. It's better. It's better. And this is why I'm daring you to just to embrace. Maybe I don't understand the Holy Spirit. Maybe I do need to be full of the Holy Spirit. Maybe I'm not as full of wisdom. Maybe I do need to take a posture of humility and go, God, teach me. Because Jesus said it was better and that the work of the Holy Spirit in all believers, not the great ones, not the most gifted ones, not the ones that can talk, in all normal, ordinary people would spread the kingdom of God to the very ends of the earth. Stephen's life is a testimony to that. And I think it challenges me because we've built churches opposite to this. We've built churches on a leader with a teaching gift that we all admire. And Jesus says, no, I build churches off normal people full of my spirit. And then I send them to every corner that they live in, which means you and I, we're a part of this. This is what I'm so excited about. This is the greatest time to be alive on the earth. Why? Because the Spirit of God indwells the people of God and puts them on mission no matter what, where they find themselves. In a farmer's field, God's there because you're there. In a car dealership, God's there because you're there. Ooh, I felt that one. <laughs> See, you think it's about the professionals and the guys that are ordained, and I think it's about normal people taking God everywhere they go. 
which makes this so fun. Taco Bell after this, God's there if you're there. Why? Because he's in you. And so learning how to let him come out is one of my greatest tasks. And what I love about Stephen, I think, is that I believe God wants the greatest miracles to happen not through the apostles, but through his people, through you. Stephen lays his life down, which we're going to read here in a second. And it's powerful. He is the first martyr. And it's, well, actually, let's read it. Let's read the end of Stephen's sermon. And if you haven't read the whole thing, it is the beautiful summary of the people of God and salvation. It's a beautiful sermon. It's the longest sermon of Acts, and it produces some fruit, man. And if your preaching doesn't tick people off, you need to preach like Stephen. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. That's how I start on the street. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, once again, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when they had said this, he fell asleep. There's some beauty in there. There's some hard stuff in there too. There's these moments where you read scripture and you're like, that's what I want, God. I want to see you. I want to be so locked in as a people into the face and the worth of Jesus that we will willingly suffer and even die if that's what he wants. And it's so contrary to what we've been taught, yeah? So I'll ask some questions, but like Stephen's life at its core was kind of a contradiction, and I think ours should be too, to everybody around him. So they're throwing rocks at him, and what is he doing? Blessing them. He's praying a prayer that sounds very similar to someone else in the Bible who died on one of these. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel so taking root in Stephen and in us that when people are literally murdering us, we're going, forgive them, bless them. You know what just boggles a brain? Blessing in the face of persecution. You know what just makes the world go, that doesn't make sense. What kingdom do you belong to? Is when you are suffering, you're going bless, honor, love, grace. This is Stephen's life. And so Stephen is literally showing us the formula. We already know. The Christian formula is two things. Do you know what it is? It's grace and, well, you said mercy. I'll say truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth mixed together will tick the world off. Because the grace will enrage them because they're like, how are you to define love? And then you'll go, because God told me what truth things is. And then they'll go, well, who are you to define what truth is? And it's just awesome. But here's the thing. Truth without grace is fundamentalism. It's just law and rules. But grace without truth is just soppy sentimentality. Grace and truth together are powerful. And it's what Stephen walked in. He walked in the truth of God. He told them that they were stiff-necked and they were resisting the Holy Spirit. Because guess what? They were. But he also said, bless them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's grace. And if you speak with grace and truth, I want to say this, the world's going to hate you. The world will hate you. It hated Stephen. It hated the disciples. It hated the apostles. It hated our Lord. And so what I love about this whole thing is Stephen sees the glory of God and that's why he's not afraid. But I think you have to come to deal with one thing. Um, 
Stephen dies, y'all. You're like, yeah. No, Stephen, they threw rocks at Stephen's head until he couldn't breathe. They crushed him into a pulp with rocks and celebrated it as God's will. So I'll ask you some questions. Was it God's will for Stephen to die? This is how I read the Bible, so you're going to have to read it like me. So this is what I'll, what I'll say. I'll do it another way. Stephen did everything right. I'll wait the tables, Lord. I'll serve the widows, God. I'll go out on the street and do your miracles, Father. Doesn't that deserve, why didn't God bless him and give him a book deal with cassettes? Why not? Isn't that the deal? I do what you want me to do. You bless me. And I would contend to you that Stephen got the best blessing. So here's what happens. Stephen is being stoned and they are laying their coats at the feet of a man. Who's the man? Who does Saul become? The greatest missionary on the, fourth, on the planet, the one that wrote the most of your New Testament, the man that was going to be the apostles to the Gentiles, which is you and me. And so Stephen's blood is the seed by which God spreads the good news over all the earth. So they're huddled in Jerusalem, about 10,000 Christians, full of the Holy Spirit, looking like they're drunk, speaking in tongues, loving life, meeting in the temple, enjoying the favor of God. And what dislodges them? The death of one man. And in that one moment, you know what the church does? They spread to every corner. And as they go, the wonder, work, and knowledge of God goes with them. So God can use even things like a guy getting his head caved in by a rock for his glory. But what you'll notice is Stephen is a very, like I, the comparison, it hurts my heart a little bit because Stephen's going, it's not about me. Ananias, it's all about me. That comparison haunts me a little bit. I want to be like Stephen. Now in my heart, in my mind, I'm like, I want to be, I want to be Stephen when I grow up. Any of you? But here's the thing. I think you got to say, well, sometimes God's will for us is martyrdom. So I'll ask you, who here would like to join me on a mission trip to Hawaii? Y'all want to go? We'll surf a little bit, probably tell some poor kids about Jesus. It'll be great. Yeah? Who of you would like to go to a Muslim country where they will more than likely crucify us and kill my kids in front of me? Who wants to raise their hand? See, this is the, the reason that I'm like, Jesus has to be our view. Because Stephen is going, Jesus is worth it all because he can see him. So Jesus is standing in heaven and there's profound weight in this moment. Kings don't stand up. If you walk in and everybody else bows, guess what you are? The king. So King Jesus is on his throne and God the Father has promised you will sit there until I make the enemies of your, uh, the enemies your footstool. You'll put your heels on them. And what does Stephen see as he's being killed? Jesus has pulled back heaven and going, that's my boy! What makes Stephen able to do what he does? He can see Jesus. So the religious people are going, heretic, he deserves to die. And King Jesus is going, you're mine. So what makes suffering bearable? Jesus. What makes persecution a thing that's like, ah, I don't care? Jesus. What makes all of this better than anything? Jesus. And I want more than anything. I want you and me and your children and your children's children to be able to say one thing. Jesus Christ is worth everything. Because if I take my family across the world and we die tomorrow and it's for Jesus' name, I will have not lost a thing. I will have gained everything. And you, some of us, we don't believe that. We don't believe that because we're like, no, 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 I deserve the blessing. But, but Stephen goes, the Lord's worth it all. He looked into heaven and he saw the Lord. The earth is condemning. Heaven is going, yes. That's a reward. Did you know that? His reward is Jesus. 
And so I'll ask you some three questions, and we'll end this thing. But they're all kind of tied up in what we've been talking about. What sin are you hiding? Are you acting like Ananias? Is Satan tempting you right now or the last days to putting something in your heart? You're like, that's not the Lord. Well, let's bring that into the light today. Why are you hiding from the lover of your soul? So many of us, we have a wrong view of God. So everybody know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Anybody know John 3.17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Very cry right now. But to save it. He wants to save you. He wants to restore you. He wants to take that dark, broken, sinful heart and make it new. Stop hiding from God. Bring that drunkenness. Bring that adultery. Bring that porn. Bring all that you are and come to God and let him save you and make you new and fill you with his spirit and use an ordinary thing to take his glory to the earth. What are you hiding from? And if you're hiding a sin today, I want you to bring it into the light. That's how we're going to respond to the Word of God today, if that's you. Two, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? And some of you will be like, yeah! Some of you will be like, I don't know. Study Scripture this week. Tell me why. Tell me how. Tell me what the Bible says, not what people say. Don't tell me what the Pentecostals say, and don't tell me what the cessationists say. Tell me what the Bible says about being full of the Holy Spirit. What will it look like? What will happen in your life? What will be coming out of it? What will be the fruit? Look at the word, tell me, are you filled? And then we'll talk about it. And then three, what is most valuable to you? You're like, huh? So for Stephen, I believe he would have said, Jesus is most valuable to me. What is most valuable to you? If we went to Taco Bell after this and I said, hey, what gets you going? What makes you, what what do you wake up in the morning thinking about, daydreaming about? That's what's probably most valuable to you. Or to put it in another way, what could I take away from you that would make you stop following Jesus? What would I, could I take? What could I touch in your life? Is it your kids? Is it your money? Is it your safety? Is it your health? What could I take that would make you go, I'm not following this man from Nazareth anymore? What's most valuable to you? Where's your treasure? And I want to end with this thought is that When we think about the book of Acts, we think about apostles. We think about highly gifted, other than, these big heroes of the faith. But when I read the book, I read the book of Acts, I see ordinary people submitted to God, filled with the Spirit of God, doing amazing things. So anybody want to claim ordinary status with me? Hello, ordinary, normal people. That's the best, that are going to go to Brookville in West College Corner, in Dartown, and wherever you came from, you're going to go back there right now. And you're going to go full of the Spirit of God. And you get to declare the glory of the wonders and the hope we have in Jesus. But I, I want you to know that you are actually sent by God to do that. Do you know what the word apostles mean? Apostolos? It means sent one. One who is Sent. And it's not a Bible term, it's a cultural term. So Caesars, hail Caesar, that whole thing, they would send apostles to a town and they would teach that town what the, the, the mannerisms and the culture of Rome were. The apostles' job was to make the town look like Rome. You and I are sent ones, except we don't care about Caesar or any king. We serve the king of kings who has sent us to make our towns, our homes, and our businesses look like the very kingdom of God. We teach them what the kingdom of God is like. We teach them what the king is like. We teach them what his characteristic and his values and what he's like. Well, this is what we do. You're a sent one. Think about it. Every time there's a need, God sends somebody. God's people are in Egypt crying out under the labor of the pharaohs. And what do they do? They cry out to God and God does what? He sends Moses. I don't know why I said it like that. That's why I did. He sends Moses. God's people wander in the wilderness and begin to kind of 
fall away from what God wants and God sends the prophets. God sends John the Baptist out in front of him to prepare the way of the Lord. Even God himself says, he so loved the world that he sent his only son. He gave, he sent his son. And so Jesus sent his early followers and Jesus sends you. And I feel like that weight of that has been lost on us and we need to re, like kind of retake on that we're the sent ones. So if I looked at any of you and I said, you're sent. You're sent to Miami University. You're sent wherever you're going to go. You're sent by God to bring the glory of God there. Do you feel qualified? Do you feel like you can do it? Can I, can I tell you that I never feel qualified and I don't think I can do it and I've been doing this for a few years and I know all the answers? But the moment that I lean in and I go, God, but I'll be Stephen and I'll serve the table, said, if you fill me with your spirit, will you go with me? He's not asking you to be great. He's saying, I am great and I'll go with you. And so I was praying on my back porch and I began to weep for several of you that came to mind. And I'm not trying to be weird, but, but Thomas Franks, you are sent by God. And I don't know if you think that you're qualified for it. Because you're like, I'm just a guy with a busted knee that drives tractors. But God loves you and wants to use you. God wants to use ordinary people. Ordinary normies. Full of the Spirit of God will change the world. Not the great ones, not the ones that write books, not the ones you watch on podcasts, the normal ones. Will you let him fill you and lead you? You might not feel qualified. I don't half the days. But he's a good God who's done it before and he's still doing it. Amen? So can I position you in prayer? And we're going to respond to the word of God in worship, in repentance, and whatever you feel like you need to do. So, Father, we respond. We don't just hear the word. We want to do it. So would you reveal by your spirit what are we hiding? If there's any sin that you want to dislodge, would you show it to us right now? Would you bring conviction? I invite your Holy Spirit to come in power and to fill us like those first disciples. Not so we can manifest gifts or do anything, but that we might know your love and then take your message to the ends of the earth. Thank you for joining us today. If you need prayer for anything, you can email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com or you can go on our website at www.cobblestonechurch.com and submit it there. We'd love to pray for you. Have a great week and God bless.